a lot of the things that I struggled with clinically, like figuring out, okay, well, who, um, who is at high enough risk that they need to be in the hospital and not out of the hospital? Um, that turns out to be a great machine learning problem because machine learning is really good at predicting a thing. So uh, predicting who's going to have a bad outcome on the basis of everything we see about someone now. Great machine learning problem. Diagnosis is a great machine learning problem. So what is diagnosis? But saying, okay, I observe a physical exam, an electrocardiogram, some lab results, the way the patient's done, and now I need to estimate the probability of acute coronary syndrome, uh, pulmonary embolus, um, aortic dissection, et cetera, et cetera. So the, a lot of the core tasks that doctors are doing in the emergency department, but everywhere, is the set of things that machine learning is really, really good at doing. Not otherwise specified has always been one of my favorite phrases in medicine. Not just because it's a fancy way of saying we don't really understand the root cause of something, but also because it captures the human impulse to put tidy labels on things that remain largely unknown. In NOS, I talk with some of medicine's most innovative thinkers to probe some of these messy unknowns behind our healthcare system, its players, and the stories that shape their lives. NOS makes time for the types of in-depth conversations that may not leave us with easy answers, but that shed fresh light on medicine's toughest challenges, as well as the people envisioning its future. I'm Lisa Rosenbaum, and you're listening to Not Otherwise Specified from the New England Journal of Medicine. My guest today is Ziad Obermeyer. Ziad is a professor of health policy and management at UC Berkeley's School of Public Health, an emergency medicine physician, and also a scientist who's doing some of the most innovative and impactful work at the intersection of machine learning, medicine, and population health. Ziad's always been interested in how physicians think and how we might make better decisions for our patients, given the limits of our own minds and all the data that we all must process all the time. Some of his work then has used machine learning techniques to create new algorithms to help us overcome our own biases, and some of his work has actually done the opposite, using machine learning to identify biases in existing algorithms that are affecting the lives of millions of patients. In 2019, he and his colleagues published a paper in Science, which identified racial bias in a widely used population health algorithm that was intended to identify patients with complex health needs, but instead was actually worsening health inequities. After they identified the bias, they then worked with the company to remove it. I remember when I read the paper and then learned about the collaboration between the scientists and the company, thinking to myself, Wow, Ziad's work is actually making the world a better place, and that is so cool. And in the three years since, he's not only gone on to do highly impactful work, but it turns out I definitely um, was not the only person who was super impressed. Ziad's become a bit of a hot commodity. Ziad, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I'm excited, as always, to get to talk to you about your work and how you get your ideas, but also about how you became who you are, what drives you, and also how you bring your background in philosophy and history of medicine to a very pragmatic and data-driven approach to improving healthcare. So welcome to the show. 
Thank you so much for that uh, very kind introduction. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Lisa. And uh, even when you know uh, some other people are listening, uh, it, it's always a treat. So I, I do want to start sort of at the beginning of your trajectory in medicine. So how did you decide on emergency medicine? And then what was residency like for you? I decided on emergency medicine uh, for, for two reasons. One, th there was an intellectual reason, which is that I, I was really interested in global health at the time, and it felt like emergency medicine was a great way to get exposed to a cross-section of lots of interesting parts of medicine that were high acuity and, and really urgent and important. There was another part of me that was just uh, responding to the fact that when I was in the hospital, all of the memories that I liked the most were um, or almost all of them were from the ER, uh, excuse me, the ED. Um, oh yeah. We can't uh, yes. Sorry. <laughs> uh, it's, it's more than just a room. Um, so, uh, so, so I think those were the, those were the reasons. Um, but I think, I think when I, so when I started residency in my, my first two years of residency, I would say that I had been a pretty bad medical student because I had a bad attitude and I was, you know, not, not excited about memorizing stuff. And I think in my first couple of years of residency, I was also a, a, a bad intern and a bad second year resident. And I think in part it was because I'd come into residency from this global health policy background. And I think part of me was still in this thinking big thoughts mode where really like what was the problem with the healthcare system? Well, it was incentives and waste and actually like, especially coming from a global health perspective, like we spend so much over here, but we're spending so little over here. So, so I, I think when I was an intern or, or a second year resident and people would want to order a, a CT scan to look for pulmonary embolus, I just roll my eyes or, you know, like an MRI and I'd be like, Oh, I can't believe this, <laughs> this guy wants me to do another you know, uh, high cost, low value test. So you can imagine what a, what a joy I was to be around, um, oh, yeah. for, for my poor attendings. And, and I think I look back on that period and I, I really feel bad because I think I, I just wasn't very good. And I was making a lot of decisions that were just like not good. And I was trying to do less and I, you know, and, and I think when you have that attitude and you're paying attention, you just see that, things fall through the cracks because, you know, yes, a lot of tests come back negative, but some don't. And, and so I think especially being in the emergency setting and seeing the huge value that you get from diagnosing an acute coronary syndrome, um, a PE, something else, um, it just becomes really clear that it's not so much about doing less or doing more. It's about doing the right thing for the right patient. And I think even as I started to get better over my second, third, fourth years of residency, I still struggled a lot with those kinds of decisions, whom to test, whom to admit to the hospital, whom to, to who is safe to send home. And I just kind of go home after shifts and I would replay things in my head and I'd be agonizing about all of these decisions that you have to make in the emergency department every day because you're seeing like 20 to 30 patients a day and all of them are just full of these difficult decisions. So it, it's a really hard um, job and it's, it's a very stressful job. But what do you think shifted in you? I mean, I understand because so much of what you're saying, I think is the foundation for some of the work, at least that you've, that you've done. And I want to talk about that, but 
on a personal level, you were just like sort of being a jerk and then you weren't. And was it because somebody talked to you or because you had like a massive misdiagnosis or do you think you just sort of grew up? Yeah, I I think, I mean, I think growing up is a great, like growing up is the perfect description of it. I think part of it is related to the structure of residency where even bad residents get promoted from PGY2 to PGY3. (laughs) And so I just, you know, they they were stuck with me in residency and they, you know, uh, there's, there's a limited supply of, of warm bodies around to do the PGY3 job. And so, so I think it was a, like many things in life, it's, there's, there's like an equilibrium where you're doing a bad job. You're not trusted with responsibility. You're kind of like, just not great. And then there's an equilibrium where you're learning a lot. You're, you're trusted to do more things. And so transitioning from one to the other, I think is always multifactorial. It's like transitioning from sickness to health or health to sickness. There are just lots of little things that add up, but I was so lucky to have great teachers around me that were constantly just pointing out these little things that, um, that were important. Like, oh, did you notice that this patient had a rash? I'm like, no, I, I didn't because I didn't actually like examine their feet. <laughs> and, and I think that if you're paying attention, you just start noticing all these things that really matter. And that, you, you know, and, and at some point it confronts you like, this is a really important job and it's really important to do it well. And I think that was probably the realization that for me was, was the most important is like actually taking pride in the work and seeing that if you did this job well, you had this huge impact on people's lives that was incredibly positive. And if you did it poorly and if you were mailing it in, it was just like, why are you even there? So, so I think growing up is, is a great description. And I think it was realizing that medicine is a great and really important job and it's worth doing well. Let's talk a little bit more about sort of then how you evolved intellectually as far as thinking about the value of testing. So I think, was it during your residency or soon after, you got a huge young, like early career investigator award, right? Yeah, that, that's right. So I, um, the NIH has a, a small percent of its portfolio dedicated to what they call high risk, uh, high reward research. (laughs) And so this is a, it, it, it works, um, differently from a normal NIH grant in the sense that you, you know, they they don't say this exactly, but you get five years of support to just grow and learn and explore lots of different things. And I think in many ways they're explicitly betting on you as a person rather than you as a, um, uh, like a lump of research that you're producing Mm -hmm. and they're paying you a certain amount of money. And, and that was good for me because many of the things that I proposed to do just turned out to be like not good ideas or, or not feasible or things like that. But that was transformative for me because it gave me a few years of breathing room to just think and learn and start building out the, the collaborative networks that, um, that, that are still incredibly um, productive and high value to me now. And so... I started off doing work that the, the project that I proposed was about people who get sent home from the emergency department and drop dead in the next few days. And, you know, <laughs> it was very directly inspired by a lot of my anxiety and stress in, in the ED because most people you sent home and then you just never figure out what happened to them. And so I would, um, after, after my shift, after I started, 
you know, having a better attitude and growing up and, and being a better doctor, I would just spend a lot of like a few times a month. I would just go back through lists of every patient that I had seen on a shift and I just open up their chart and see what happened to them. Um, and I think that's one thing that is, it's a weird fact about our electronic health records is that we have so many things that we could learn from, like, like it would be great to have some structured way to learn from all of the patients you see, but how do you actually learn? Well, if a colleague happens to see you and they're like, oh, Hey, remember that patient you saw? And you're like, oh my goodness. That, the, this, worst. The, the worst, healing. Yeah. the worst healing. Yeah. No one ever is like, yeah. Everything happened exactly the way you thought it was going to be. And the patient's doing fine. <laughs> no, when yeah. someone says, hey, remember, you're just, no, it's terrifying. You know. Yeah. Yeah, it's terrifying. But, but so that we learn in this incredibly ad hoc way um, or, or in this painful way where you have to like type in every MRN and then look at the ch- So So the project that I was doing was basically um, uh, taking advantage of a linkage between the electronic health record and social security data that told, that told you whether or not someone had died and specifically whether or not someone had died um, outside of the hospital. And I would, when I first started doing this project, I'd look at the charts of patients who had died, not at the, at the hospital that I was working in, but, but somewhere else at another hospital or out of the hospital. And there'd just be these notes from the clinic manager, like patient did not keep appointment, patient did not keep appointment, and they had no idea. And, and I think it speaks to this, how the fragmentation of our health record really inhibits both good clinical care because you can't see what tests the patient had, but also inhibits learning because you don't see what happened in a lot of cases. And in fact, some of the most important cases. Um, So what we found was that this happened, I think more often than I would have thought. So when we looked at Medicare data, um, you know, like, and and you you look at generally healthy people that are just, you know, uh, ambulatory uh, who come to the um, emergency department and get a diagnosis that doesn't look like a bad diagnosis. We just found that people died um, after being sent home from the ED more often than we would have thought. And, and I think that that um, honestly raised a lot more questions for me than it answered in the sense that, you know, well, what you'd really want to know is like, well, what did they have? What could I have done differently? And I think that's why a lot of the things that I produced in that phase of my research were interesting and they, they, prompted a lot of future projects, but, but weren't ultimately that satisfying on their own. And so if I were putting myself in the shoes of the people at NIH that handed me this, this check, I don't know, I've been like, well, this guy didn't produce that much of value, but it produced a lot of learning, which is, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure they're very happy about that. Um, that I, I learned a lot, um, <laughs> but it did, it did very much set me on the, on the path of research that I'm doing today. So even if you look at that grant and look at the outputs, you're like, eh, this is a little thin. Um, I, I, I think everything that I'm doing now is because the NIH uh, essentially took a, took a chance on me through that portfolio of, of grants from the uh, office of the director. Um, that was uh, Francis Collins at the time. Wow. And is that because of the networks you established in terms of the people you collaborate with now and the development of machine learning techniques or something else? Yeah, uh, all all of those things. So I think what I realized during that period was that a lot of the things that I struggled with clinically, like figuring out, okay, well, who um, who is at high enough risk that they need to be in the hospital and not out of the hospital, um, that 
turns out to be a great machine learning problem because machine learning is really good at predicting a thing. So uh, predicting who's going to have a bad outcome on the basis of everything we see about someone now. Great machine learning problem. Diagnosis is a great machine learning problem. So what is diagnosis? But saying, okay, I observe a physical exam, an electrocardiogram, some lab results, the way the patient's... And now I need to estimate the probability of acute coronary syndrome, uh, pulmonary embolus, um, aortic dissection, et cetera, et cetera. So the, a lot of the core tasks that doctors are doing in the emergency department, but everywhere, is the set of things that machine learning is really, really good at doing. And so it took me a while to start thinking about these problems that way, but that was the, the period where I was starting to think about these things and think about the really productive ways in which you could use machine learning um, to help doctors and, and others in the healthcare system make better decisions. So then I know you published, because it's one of my favorite studies in science, I think around 2018, about end-of-life care and costs and our predictive abilities in terms of who who will live and who will die. Can you talk a little bit about the narrative around end-of-life care at the time, how you got the idea to do the study, um, what you found, and then also whether you think it impacted the narrative about the fact that we were wasting so much money at the end of life? So I'd been really interested in um, end-of-life care because one of the, I mean, it's a really crazy thing about our job in medicine is you just, you watch a lot of people die. It's a crazy thing. It's, it's not an experience that most people thankfully have, but you, you spend a lot of time with death. And I think especially in the emergency department, you spend a lot of time with people who have these chronic conditions. They've got end-stage cancer, and yet they come in and everyone is just completely unprepared for it. And no one's talked about it, and, and it's really hard to have those conversations. And so I think there's a movement to try to find ways to have those conversations earlier and better, and, and I think that movement is still absolutely right. And I think that you know the, the goal of better and more satisfying and better planned end-of-life care just is is 110% correct. I think there's a there's a narrative that's in parallel to that one, which is saying that like in addition to that being a great thing to do, you know, uh, clinically, humanistically, whatever, that could also save us a ton of money. Because if you just add up all of the 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 healthcare that is delivered in the last year of life. So you look at people who um, who die and then you just turn the clock back a year. It's an enormous fraction of our medical expenditures, even though only a very small fraction of people die. So I think you know the, the reason to do this is not just a humanistic endeavor related to you know, a good death, et cetera. It's also, well, because this is a huge source of, of um, expenditures and, and potentially waste. And so, you know, naturally, because this is something that's like, well, if only I'd known a few months ago that death was imminent, that also seems like a great machine learning problem. And so I, I was very optimistic about the role of machine learning to both facilitate these conversations early, but also to, to save us, you know, a, a lot of money on futile healthcare. And so uh, working with um, uh, so, some some co-authors, um, we we published the, the study that, that you mentioned where we just tried to 
predict who was going to die. This is like in, in Medicare data. It's like most of the deaths are, are covered by Medicare. And we tried to predict who was going to die with machine learning and then figure out, okay, well, if we knew at a certain point how many dollars were downstream of when we knew above a certain threshold that someone was going to die. And one of the really surprising things that, that completely changed my mind about, you know, how I was thinking about end of life care and the savings associated with it was that it turns out to just be really hard to predict well enough to save the kinds of money that people were hoping for by um, turning down the knob on end of life care. And that's because not only do you need to know who's going to die, you also need to know when they're going to die. And it turns out that even if you had a near perfect algorithm on, on any reasonable metric, like algorithms approaching the, the things that you know uh, large tech companies have in practice for, for other kinds of outcomes, you'll just never get to the point where the, um, the threshold of predictability is crossed and there's a substantial amount of dollars on the other end of that. Uh, so, so it really changed my mind about the potential of better end of life care um, to save a lot of money. Um, it didn't change my mind about whether that was worth doing because it's absolutely worth doing for reasons completely unrelated to money. Right. There's a moral case and a financial case, and those get fi- those get conflated. I think I, I yeah, totally agree. Um, can we? I just want to back up because every time I read one of your studies, I understand what you find, but I don't understand this idea of how you train an algorithm to be better than we are. What does that actually mean? So for instance, if a patient comes in, if I see a patient in the emergency room, for instance, who's had you know seven admissions in the last year for heart failure and is extremely frail and also lives alone and is 85, et cetera, obviously I have a sense that that patient's probably not going to do well. But what you're finding in your data is that there's an algorithm that's going to know something that I can't see or that I can't glean from the chart. And what I just never can quite wrap my head around is how can you overcome what's wrong with my mind if like something like my mind has to teach the algorithm? So it's a great question. And, and I think that the, um, the way a lot of machine learning works in medicine and other places is to say, okay, I'm going to um, take this complex uh, piece of data. So, you know, in, in medicine, let's say it's like, you know, every part of the electronic health record before that patient walks into the emergency department. And then I'm going to predict something. And that, and what that something is turns out to be really, really important because you know, you could predict in this case, one of two things. One is, does Lisa think this person is going to die in the next month or six months or something like that? So you can get algorithms to predict human judgment or, and so in that case, algorithms learn from humans, which can be very useful in some settings, or you can train algorithms to learn from patients and from nature and from what actually happens. And I think that that's the that's the way that algorithms can add an enormous amount of value over human judgment is when they're learning from nature and not from humans. And so an algorithm can look through that mass of electronic health record data leading up to the emergency department visit and look at subtle trends in the potassium or the sodium or, or the relationship between those two things or the relationship between those things and the electrocardiogram waveform 
And it can tie all of those together to make a prediction on whether that patient is going to die in the next however many days. And, and by circumventing the human judgment, like your judgment about whether or not that patient's going to die, it can, you know, in some cases add a lot of value to the human decisions that get made that depend on whether or not that patient is going to die. For example, um, should I have that conversation with them? Should they get their finances in order? Should they make sure they have a will, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. I have two questions related to that then. First of all, we all know that a lot of the EHR is just crap. So I, you have all those objective data, the labs, for instance, the the tests, although the, you know, the reads of the tests, I assume, can be variably reliable. But then you have just so much copied and pasted nonsense. So I assume, so I guess, how do you, how do you avoid the garbage in, garbage out problem? That's one question. And then the other is, once you have your algorithm that's better than you are, can it just tell you what you should be paying attention to instead? So let's start with the, the, the garbage in, garbage out problem is mostly uh, a statement about what the algorithm is predicting. So if we're predicting who's, you know, whether or not someone is going to die in the next month, now imagine you've, you've given the algorithm the goal. So the algorithm's goal is to, to tell you, okay, well, what's the probability this person's going to die in the next month? And, and it's able to learn from thousands or millions of patients that it's seen, and some of them die and others don't. When the algorithm is sorting through all of this EHR data to figure out, okay, well, what's correlated with that, you know, a given person dying or not dying, if there's a bunch of copy-pasted garbage that is not useful well, then the algorithm is going to disregard it because it's not helpful for predicting the thing. I see. So, so the, the huge strength of these algorithms is that we don't need to tell it, oh, don't pay attention to this, <laughs> pay attention to that. Like because of, you know, and, and this is just a, a comment about, you know, the, the enormous computational advances that we've made. The algorithm's strength is its ability to distinguish the garbage from the, from the gold and use the gold and disregard the garbage in making its predictions. And, and the whole, I think, special sauce of machine learning is, is exactly that task of figuring out exactly what's useful for predicting the thing you want it to predict and what's not. Now, if the thing you want it to predict is not the right thing to predict, then it runs into a lot of problems. And in fact, a lot of my work on algorithmic bias and how problems get into algorithms is when the humans that build the algorithms tell the algorithm to predict the wrong thing wrong in the sense that it's not the thing we really care about. Like, is someone going to get sick? But a proxy measure, like, is someone going to decide to spend money on this person because they think they're sick? And those two things are very different. And that's where a lot of problems creep into algorithms. Okay. So maybe, maybe we should talk a little bit about the data you have on cardiovascular testing, because I, I will be able also to, to understand. But my sense of those data I think I heard you present them even a few years ago at NBER, but you can talk about it. But I I think that my sense of the bottom line is like we're under-testing in high-risk people and we're over-testing in low-risk people and your algorithm can better predict than we can. So obviously as a cardiologist, I want the algorithm to tell me who I ought to be testing. And so that gets back to that that second part of the last question. What, What can... 
we as cardiologists learn, <laughs> please help us, um, about the people you know, who most need to be tested. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, th this is, I think, a tool that is very salient and relevant to, to people who um, do any work in the emergency department, because one of the things that, you know, in, in residency and in practice, like you're always thinking about is, is this person in front of me um, having a heart attack? And heart attack, as of course, uh, the, the medical listeners know, it doesn't always look like it does on television. It's not, it's not always a um, middle-aged white man uh, clutching his chest. Sometimes it's women. <laughs> Sometimes they're not white. Sometimes they have different symptoms. And so the, the, it's really a dilemma. And it's a dilemma because the definitive tests that we use to, to test for heart attack, um, catheterization in particular, it's an invasive procedure. It has risks. It's expensive. It's, um, it's uncomfortable. And so you can't just do that on everyone who has a little bit of nausea or mild chest pain or whatever. On the other hand, you don't want to miss um, someone who's having a heart attack in the ED. So it's a really tough decision because, on the one hand, you can burn a lot of money, which is what people, uh, which is what cardiologists often accuse us of doing in the emergency department. But you're 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 stuck because you also don't want to miss these cases where you can add a huge amount of value. And so, you know, I think everyone who's practiced in the emergency department has a story of someone that they thought was, you know, I, I remember this in particular because this was. I was in my first year or two as an attending at the Brigham and I'd worked an overnight and I'd seen this, um, this woman who was just like, you know, she's like tired. She was like having a hard time walking around and, you know, so I saw her overnight, it was busy. And, um, I was like, well, I think she's just like, she's deconditioned. She, she just hasn't been, you know, like leaving the house a lot recently. And so I signed her out to my department chair, uh, Ron Walls. I don't know if you ever met him. <laughs> oh, um, yeah on Thursday morning. Uh, and I was like, yeah, I think she's just deconditioned. And anyway, it was, um, very lucky that, that Ron is extremely good at this job. Cause he, something about the story didn't sound right to him. And he went into the room and he was like, no, I think she needs a stress test. And she had, you know, like, you know, a grossly positive stress test ended up with three stunts like the same day. Yikes. So it's just, you know, and at the same time, you order. I, I've ordered a lot of stress tests and, and sent people for catheterization that came back negative. So everyone has these two experiences of ordering a lot of tests that are negative and also missing or coming close to missing things that would have been catastrophic that you that you should have tested. So that was the that's the the dilemma. And so what we did was we built an algorithm uh, using data from from the hospital where I was practicing. So I'm in the data set. <laughs> and what we did was we had it look at every single patient over a long period who had been catheterized. So these are patients that doctors were worried enough about to send to catheterization in the, in the few days after their emergency department visit, mostly in the, the, the same day or the day after. And it just learned, well, what are the things that make a positive cath more likely and what are the things that, that don't? So the algorithm learned from, in this, uh, you know, I'd say from from the result of the test. And it learned to predict who was going to end up with a stent and who wasn't effectively. And then we took that algorithm and we deployed it on a new set of patients that it had never seen. And we just compared what the algorithm was saying to what the doctor was doing and, and then what happened to the patient. So the first finding, as you alluded to, we, we do a lot of tests that are predictably negative using data that we knew from the triage desk. And so when we look at all of the patients that doctors decided to, to test, 
um, with these invasive high cost tests, about two thirds, the algorithm says, yeah, don't do this test. You're never going to find anything. And those tests largely come out to be not, not just like low value, but just like extraordinarily low value. And we knew that, or the algorithm knew that from, from the beginning, from the triage desk. So, you know, first finding, not that surprising. Doctors do a lot of uh, tests on low risk patients that they shouldn't do. Those tests come out to be negative. Um, not, not a big surprise to anyone who's read the literature or who's practiced, um, you know, in, in, in the, the ED or in the cath lab. I think the second finding was, was certainly much more surprising to me, which is that now we can get the algorithm to, you know, also look at the high risk people and about half of the very, very high risk people, doctors don't test. And that's interesting because it also suggests that at the same time that there's over-testing, there also could be under-testing of very high-risk people. And I'll just note parenthetically that, you know, you can come up with a great story for why incentives push doctors to over-test low-risk patients, whether it's malpractice or, you know, financial um, to the hospital, to the, to the doctor. It's very hard to come up with an incentive story for why doctors are failing to test high-risk patients. So... Um, so when we look at those high-risk patients that doctors don't test and also don't diagnose with anything related to heart attack, and in a lot of cases, don't even do an electrocardiogram or a troponin on the, the most basic screening tests that anyone that you suspect of heart attack would have, um, those people go on to have adverse events in the month after their emergency department visit at extraordinarily high rates. So suggesting that they're genuinely high-risk, the algorithm is seeing something that the doctors are missing. And then the last piece of evidence is that when we look at, um, so there's a, there's a little experiment that happens when anyone walks into the ED and that experiment is which providers do you see? And some providers, it turns out like to test more than others. Um, and, and I think we all know this from, you know, just being in the hospital. Um, some people will test more, other people test less. It turns out when those high risk patients walk into the ED on a shift staffed by people who test more, they do a lot better than people than than if they walk into the same ED on the same day, like a Monday afternoon, and they see a team of providers who tests less. And so there's a fairly large mortality difference for those high-risk patients and only those high-risk patients, depending on who they see in the ED and how much they get tested. And so that was the last piece of evidence that really convinced me that there was a real story here around under-testing of high-risk patients. So um, so we're taking the results of the study and we're working with a, a large um, healthcare system called Providence uh, on the West Coast. They have um, like, um, oh, do you- I mean, you, I'm from Oregon, yeah, so- Yeah, we, you know them, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. It's, they are, um, just parenthetically, it is a fantastic hospital system. It's really, you know, when I think about hospitals that are on the frontier of um, adopting data science and, and technology in a safe and, and responsible way, that they are an amazing system. So it's really a, an honor to work with them. And what we're doing is we're rebuilding that algorithm inside of their system, and we're going to deploy it as a randomized trial um, in some of their emergency departments and not others. And we're just going to see if the, the results that we got on paper hold up in practice in this rigorous um, evaluation. Wow. That is like real march of science work, right? From, I mean, you you created the algorithm, you then validated it, right? With, am I, is that correct? Yeah. And yeah, now so, you're doing an RCT with it. Yeah. And I think it's, um, it's something that I've come to realize is that it, 
we got, you know, we get very good at publishing papers and publishing papers is, is important because there's a, there's a process and peer review as, as you know, uh, it has its flaws for sure, but peer review is just, it's an important part of the process, but it's not the end of the process. And I think, I think I used to have a model where it's like, well, my job is done when I publish the paper and now it's up to someone else to turn that paper into a real thing. And I, I as I've, I think, grown up as a, as a researcher, um, I, I think I realized that there's no one better to do the applied follow-up stuff from the paper um, than, than the people who wrote the paper. Um, and so that's, that's how I'm, I'm thinking about it now. And it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a very satisfying way to think about research, just doing it from end to end. Oh, that must be so fulfilling. So I, my mind is going in two directions. One is I want to try to better understand as a, you know, cardiologist who sees patients, how you get past, I mean, like physicians hate decision aids, for instance. So like, how do you get past like the, the physician ego essentially of like, here's this algorithm that's better than you possibly. So I want to talk about that, but then I want to come back so we don't forget to this whole idea of the, the incentives around research, because you, you've now touched on a couple of times, this idea that, you know, somebody believed in you or a group of people believed in you, gave you time to not necessarily publish a ton of stuff, but to learn to think. And then now you're able to sort of winnow your focus um, to, to see something through that's, that, that really is having tremendous impact. I mean, we haven't even talked about two of your biggest studies that have, uh, you know, really addressed structural racism in our, in our system in two different ways. So hopefully we can get to that. Um, but how do you, how do you sort of uh, earn the goodwill of the doctors by introducing an algorithm. And then I would love to hear your thoughts about incentive systems around research production. Um, all, all great questions. On, on the doctor interaction front, I, I think there's a, there's a conventional wisdom that, you know, doctors don't want help. And I think that that is largely dependent on the kind of, um, help in air quotes that you're talking about. So uh, there are a lot of really bad decision aids out there. Um, that there, there are ones that, you know, you've already made your decision to do some kind of radiological study. And as you're putting in the order, a dialogue box up, a dialogue box pops up and says, did you know that CT scans involve radiation? It's like, yeah, <laughs> I do know. And I decide, so, so you're, you're going to click whatever you need to click to just keep doing the thing that you decided to do. And, and I think that there's actually evidence that when these, these kinds of decision aids provide valuable information, doctors really like it. Like there's, there was a study, I think at Children's, that took um, pharmacogenomic data and presented that to doctors and saying, oh, you were going to write this dose, but this, this patient has this mutation that should make you write this, do th this dose of the medication instead. And doctors uniformly adopt that recommendation because it's actually useful. It tells them something that they don't already know. Got it. So I think that's the that's the perspective that I went into the design process with is like, how can we help doctors do the thing that they already want to do? And I think doctors don't actually want to test a bunch of low-risk patients. I think that the financial incentives are completely overblown and very far from anyone's mind when they're actually practicing in the ED, what you want to do is just not miss heart attacks. 
And so if you can help the doctors process this enormous amount of information overload that's in the chart and say, well, I'm going to surface the things that the algorithm is using to make its prediction. For example, this person had two negative catheterizations in the past three years. So we can surface that information and we can help the doctor document. So we can create dot phrases in the electronic health record that pull in that information. And that's, you know, so the doctor can just have a dot phrase that says, yes, I understand this patient is blank years old and, you know, has a chief complaint of blank, but they also have these five low risk factors. So on balance, I don't think this is an acute coronary syndrome and I will not keep them for testing. So yeah. adding, adding value in that way is, is also, you know, I, I think that's the way to think about it. And, and likewise for high risk patients, doctors don't want to miss high risk patients. They don't want to have a patient that they forgot to do an ECG on or a troponin on. Um, and, and so helping doctors realize that like it, it, you know, it's busy, but think about doing this test on this patient. If you don't want to, that's fine too. Uh, and, and we have to respect doctor's autonomy because the doctor, uh, as we show in the paper, the doctor often knows a lot more than the algorithm. And so you'd never want a situation where you take away the physician's autonomy because the physician knows a ton of things that the algorithm doesn't about how the patient looks, how they answer questions, what, you know, what the results of testing in the ED are. So I think coming into this with respect for what the physician knows and with a mentality of being helpful rather than being annoying um, has already gotten us a long way as we talk to doctors in the system and, and try to get this thing implemented. That's another thing that I've just loved so much about your work because the assumptions about physician intentions are so negative. I mean, the 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 narrative around, you know, financial bias being sort of the driving force of all of our behavior has been pervasive for so long. And I understand, obviously, partly because financial incentives do shape behavior and also because we can measure them. So it's just the lowest hanging fruit in terms of studying anything. But your work is some of the only that I've come across, and especially with that study you did about end-of-life spending that said, oh, you know, hey, actually maybe we are spending a lot on these patients because we think they might live and they do indeed live. And that was so refreshing. And I I hope that, you know, in addition to everything else you're doing, you continue to use your machine learning techniques to get inside our minds and reveal what's actually going on. Because I just think that's so cool. Yeah, thanks for, I, I, I totally agree with you. And I think that there's this, um, in part, uh, I think both the the problem and the solution are coming from the field of economics. I, I think the, one of the problems is that for a long time, um, because incentives, as you said, are the thing we can measure and the thing we understand, we look at everything through the lens of incentives. And so there's this view of doctors as these like evil, you know, profit seeking geniuses that are just like, they know exactly who's at what risk and they're testing the high risk patients, but then they're also dipping down into the medium risk patients because, you know, that's the, the financially optimal thing to do. And, and it's, it's so crazy when you actually are the one making these decisions and, you know, not to say that financial incentives don't matter, they, they matter. But as a fraction, like as the explanatory power for the decisions that the doctors actually make, these things are, you know, very, very small, like they're visible and they're there. But the dominant thing is that medicine is just really hard and you make a lot of mistakes. Um, and, and I think that, you know, there, there's actually, I think to, to the credit of, of economists, there's a bunch of recent work that is showing exactly that. Um, so, um, 
Janet Curry at Princeton has these beautiful studies on kind of simultaneous over and underuse. Um, and, uh, and I think there, there's, there's, there, you know, Jason Abelak and Leila Aga also have a paper on, you know, over and under testing for pulmonary embolus. So I think that, you know, as economics has started to acknowledge a huge role for human error and, and biases and, 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 and mistakes, um, I think that is now starting to come into medicine. And, and I think that really resonates with anyone who's ever practiced medicine because we are very far from perfect. And I think we need all the help we can get. Yeah, I agree with you. Maybe let's talk about the incentives around research because I'm sure you, I mean, since we're talking about incentives anyway, and I'm sure you've thought a lot about it. What can we do as a profession to sort of stop incentivizing quantity over quality? I mean, you really have had such an ideal trajectory and that I sense from you, and I don't want to put words in your mouth that, I mean, you're not only doing impactful work, but you're doing exactly what you want to do every day. Like you're passionate about it. Yeah. And not every, I, yeah, go ahead. I, I, well, thanks for saying so. And I, um, that, that's exactly right. And I think maybe in the spirit of, of our conversation about doctor incentives, I think here, you know, of course there's an incentive structure that currently exists but I think that incentive structure is in part the result of a, a shortcoming in education. And so like one very weird thing about medicine is that there's no PhD in medicine. So it's like, all, you know, there well, people get MD PhDs, but then they have a PhD in another field and they largely just do work that is like that field. And they also happen to see some patients on the side. So it's weird that we don't get any actual training and research. And we're just kind of expected to like pick it up as we go along. And I think that that, that's not how good research generally happens. Like having now spent a lot of time with a lot of people who, you know, not only had um, the benefit of a, of a PhD, but then also worked with a ton of really smart people afterwards and learned from them. It's hard to produce good research and it takes a lot of training and investment. And if you contrast that to medicine, you're just kind of expected to pick it up as you go. And, and so I think that that's almost, and I think that's why we end up with the system that incentivizes quantity over quality. It's because we have a hard time evaluating the quality of research because we haven't, you know, oh. we haven't been trained in how to do it. And so it's a lot easier to have like a checklist or like a, you know, a threshold or, you know, or, you know, even better count up um, NIH grant dollars uh, alongside the number of publications and this plus that equals uh, tenure. So I, I think this incentive system is itself the result of a shortfall in, in medical education. I don't think every doctor needs to, you know, know how to do research, but, but I think there need, there, there should be, um, a better way for people who are interested in clinical research, like, like the research that, that I do, that I'm very passionate about and that we've been talking about, like, how do you learn how to do that? That there's no, there's no easy way to do that. And so I think that's why it's, it's in a bit of uh, short supply. Are you going to, do something about that. <laughs> I mean, no, I'm, I'm kind of being facetious, but I'm serious. I mean, how are we going to, there's just so much inertia around not only, I mean, I don't want to like just sort of say bad stuff about med ed, but if anything, it feels like it's going the wrong direction in terms of like 
I don't know, just trying to take on more things um, at the at the cost of like, I mean, being really good at a, a smaller set of things that might be more in our purview. It's a great point. I mean, medicine is complicated. There's a lot of things you have to know. And, and I, I think it's just hard for everyone to know everything. Um, it's the dilemma of specialization. It's, it's great. It means knowledge is growing, but it, it does mean that you need to know a lot of stuff. And there's a lot of people competing to get on the medical curriculum. So um, I, I think there are some signs that at least like, it, or I'll, I'll tell you. So I teach an undergrad class at, um, at Berkeley and it's basically AI for health. And, you know, even though uh, for branding purposes, it's, it's a course about AI, it's really a course about like very mundane things about health data and how to do useful stuff with it. Um, and so I think at least in this area, we're benefiting from a lot of people being interested in data and data science mm-hmm. and computer science. And I think we can get those people early so that by the time some of them go into medical school, they already know enough that even if medical schools hypothetically didn't change at all (laughs) and didn't decide to add value in this particular area, I think by virtue of getting different people in, um, that'll that'll change. Um, I think there's also uh, a lot of um, movement at a lot of different universities around data science. And so there's a new program that I'm part of that's joint between UCSF and Berkeley called Computational Precision Health. Um, where there's going to be a PhD program, uh, data resources, faculty from both the Berkeley side, um, computer science, uh, statistics, um, uh, pu- public health, and and the UCSF side, uh, bringing all of that clinical expertise um, around this this new field that's at the intersection of of data and clinical medicine. So I, I think people are starting to see the need for these kinds of things, and I'm I'm optimistic. Uh, we're cautiously optimistic that that there will be a supply of Um, these kinds of training opportunities in the future. That's awesome. I've been talking with Ziad Obermeyer at UC Berkeley, who's clearly a trailblazer in the actually useful and enlightening application of machine learning to population health. His research elucidates critical aspects of clinical care, contributing to our understanding of the value of interventions for specific patients at specific times, and enhancing our admittedly limited prognostic abilities. It's heartening to hear that he's also working to train a new generation of researchers to seek answers to such crucial questions in medicine and healthcare. Thank you for coming on today and telling us about your amazing work and your outlook and your vision. Thanks, Lisa. Wonderful to talk to you as always. 